Welcome to the Miami Valley Church Podcast. We're so excited that you are here with us. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you are going to hear today. We'd love to have you join us online Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at miamivalley.org. If you love the Miami Valley Church Podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now go, love the valley right where you are. I've got a question for you this morning as we get going into God's Word, Psalm 131. Have you ever received a big gift, but it came in a small package? Maybe somebody along the way gave you a new car. Maybe it wasn't brand new, maybe, but it was new to you. And instead of letting you see the car, they just gave you a car key and it was in a teeny tiny package. Maybe you're a college student and you're just starting the semester and uh, you received a scholarship, but you didn't get one of those big old cardboard checks. You just got a little envelope and inside that envelope was $500, $5,000, maybe a full ride scholarship, but this little package contained a big gift. We're in Psalm 131 today and it's been said of Psalm 131. It's the shortest to read, but the longest to learn. There is a big gift coming to you and me in this small package. It's only three verses. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you the outline and the outline is this, verse one, is the result. Verse two is the process and verse three is the reason. The result, the process, and the reason. So you grab your Bible, you grab your favorite Sunday morning beverage, you listen to the music, you prepare your heart, and Pastor Wooldridge has some words for us as we get ready to get into God's word this morning. Hey, good morning, church. This is Pastor Jed, and I just want to remind you of a couple upcoming events. First off, tonight, 8 p.m., we are going to be having our August Valley Rally via Zoom. You should have received uh, an email link uh, within the emails that go out weekly from us. If you are not receiving those, please email me directly at jedw at miamivalley.org, jedw at miamivalley.org. We believe that God is leading us through this wilderness journey uh, in this season. And we wanna communicate the things that God has been speaking to us, the steps that we are to take as a church and the way that he is calling us to trust him and do good in this season. So I hope that you will join us for that tonight, 8 p.m. Valley Rally as we come together. Uh, Also coming up Saturday, September the 12th, Miami Valley Church is gonna be hosting Marriage Night 2020. It's going to be a virtual event uh, through Right Now Media. There is still time to register for that. You can register directly through Right Now Media or through the emails that we send out uh, each week. And so I hope that you'll be a part of that. It's going to be a time to laugh, a time to learn, and a time to grow in our marriages. And so uh, don't forget about uh, each one of those events tonight, uh, 8 p.m., the Valley Rally, September 12th, Marriage Night 2020. I hope to see you at both of those. So would you go ahead and prepare your heart with me as we go before our holy God in worship this morning. Long ago foretold his birth He became the living word To show the human heart it's worth Whether I'm in want or plenty Whether I'm in health or ill Our God promises his children He will, he will He'll bind up the broken hearted Oh he will, oh he will darkness oh he will oh he will he'll breathe hope into the hopeless help a restless soul be still oh, 
came to walk in truth and grace Man of sorrows entered all our pain On the cross he took our place Then he rose up out of the grave Whether I'm in want or plenty Whether I'm in health or ill Our God promises his children he will broken hearted oh he will oh he will he'll set captives free from darkness oh he will oh he will he'll breathe hope into the hopeless hope a restless soul be still oh oh he will he will he'll give beauty for Psalm 131, and instead of asking you to stand up, it's so short, I'm just going to ask you to remain seated. I'm going to ask you to just concentrate. Don't look at your Bible. Just listen to me as I recite Psalm 131. Psalm 131, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a song of David. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty, and my feet do not walk after things that are too great or too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child upon its mother, like a weaned child, my soul within me. Hope, O Israel, in the Lord now and forever. This is the word of God for the people of God. Three short verses, 33 words in the Hebrew language, 33 words, so short, but so jam-packed with us living the kind of life we wanted. Before we get into this, it, it presents, verse one, it presents the kind of life that all of us want. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and like, oh, I just wish I could be a fly on the wall in that conversation over there? Uh, maybe you've got a coworker that got called into the boss's office. Maybe you got a friend that got called into the principal's office. Maybe you have a sibling that got called into your parents' bedroom. Oh, if I could just be a fly on the wall and I could just hear what's going on. In Psalm 131, we get a chance to have insight into a conversation between the songwriter, who we know to be David, and God himself. And David just says to God, God, this is how I'm living my life right now. And if you look at verse one, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I want to live 
just like that because it's somebody who presents a soul that's calm and a, a person that's at peace and who has a, an understanding of who they are and who others are and who God is. I'm like, I want to live like that. Well, how do you get that kind of result? Well, some of you are like, well, that's the Bible. That's just fiction. Uh, there's no way that can happen. But I just need to remind you that God uses real people in real places at real times. And we know that the author of this psalm is David. It's what it says right there, a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem, a psalm of David. What do we know about David? Well, some of you know that he was a king. Well, before he was king, when we first meet him, he was a a shepherd boy. And shepherd boys understand pressure. They understand uh, the pains of life. David was probably a teenager when we meet him, when he's a shepherd out taking care of his father's sheep. You know what that means, right? That he is responsible for the family business. If something happens to one sheep, the profit line goes down. If something happens to all of the sheep under his watch, the family business is over with, done with. He understands understands the pressure of trying to run a business and keep a dad happy. He understands those kind of pressures. He understands the external pressures. Uh, Sheep don't have the ability to defend themselves. And so he's got to protect them from wild animals, from wolves and bears and lions. And he understands the battle and the pressure that comes from keeping others safe. So yeah, well, that was just early in his life. He became the king of Israel and kings have everything luxurious. So why wouldn't your soul be at peace and, and you have a proper outlook on life? Do you understand that when David was king, when he was anointed king, there was a problem. There was somebody who already had that job title, and his name was Saul. And David, after he was anointed king by the prophet of God, knowing that this was God's plan for his life, David will spend a decade, that's right, 10 years of his life on the run from Saul, who's trying to kill him. It is not going to be an easy life. If you want to read one chapter, if you don't know the whole story of David and you want just a glimpse into that, I'd encourage you to read 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26. In fact, I'll be referencing that later in the teaching, but it gives you just a glimpse into David's life uh, on the run for a decade of his life. After he finally becomes king, he's going to have to rule, not from the capital of Jerusalem where he wants to be the king of everybody. He's going to have to rule for seven years from a from another smaller town called Hebron, and he's going to rule from there. It's not everything he longs for it to be, all the dreams he has for what his job and what the kingdom's going to look like. It takes a while for that to come uh, to fruition. He's not even actually going to get to do the one thing that he really wants to do, and that's build the temple of God, because he's a man with faults, and he's a man with extreme failures, and he understands his sin, and he understands his guilt, and he understands that how in the world could God love somebody like me? God uses real people in real places at real times who are going through real problems and understand real pressures. Once David's king, he even has a son that tries to uh, overthrow his uh, institute a coup to try to take over the throne. So David understands these pressures. So don't just think, oh, that's a biblical character who doesn't know what life's like, like I experienced life. David knows exactly the pains and the trials and the tribulations just like you and I do. And so he comes and he has this conversation with God and he simply says, God, I, I just need you to understand. He, he uses the name Lord at Uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the personal name of God. I think what David's saying is, God, I have this intimate relationship with you, and you know exactly who I am, and you know everything about me. So God, I can say this with all honesty. Uh, Lord, my heart 
is not proud. Did David have any reason to be proud? Absolutely he did. Uh, he, was the, he was the little kid who went to the frontline battles and he fought a champion. The rest of the army of Israel was cowering in fear. And David's like, the armor doesn't even fit. Just let me take my slingshot and my rocks and let me go fight this person who's mocking the name of the Lord our God. And he kills the champion Goliath. Absolutely has reason to be proud. As David uh, continues to grow in popularity and Saul's still king, the people write a song about him and the chorus simply says, Saul is slain as thousands and David is ten thousands. I think the people are saying David not being king is ten times better than the king we've got. The people love him and they adore him. Sure, he has reason for his heart to be proud. But you know the thing about pride is that it's never just about you. You can't have pride unless you think about other people a certain way. You think big about yourself and little about others. That's why David says, I have a proper view of myself. My heart is not proud. David knew that after he had uh, committed just a horrific sin, he'd had sex with another man's wife and he got caught. And it's just, I had to go to the front of God and say, God, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to forgive me. David needed a lot of forgiveness. So he has a proper perspective about himself. But then the second part of verse one of Psalm 131 says this. It says, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. By the way, Proverbs chapter 6 says that there are six things that God hates, seven that are detestable unto him. You know what's at the top of the list? Haughty eyes. What do haughty eyes mean? Haughty eyes mean this, that when I, when I look at other people, I look at the people that are above me, and my eyes look at them and try to figure out ways to tear them down. I look at people who are below me and look at them and try to figure out ways to keep them from rising up. That's what haughty eyes do. They, you size up everybody, you size up the competition, how you relate in position to them. And somebody that's above you, you want to tear them down. Somebody that's below you, you want to keep them down. That's haughty eyes. And David surely could have done that. He could have had haughty eyes. He could have looked at King Saul and said, I'm better than him already. I'm not even the full-blown king yet, and I'm better than him. The people know uh, that I'm better than him. First Samuel chapter 26 um, Saul is on one side of the valley and David's on the other. And Saul has brought 3,000 men to try to find and capture and kill David. And one evening, Saul just falls asleep. The scriptures say that God put Saul and all of those that are with him into a deep sleep. And David and one of the men that's working on uh, his behalf uh, come into the camp and they see Saul asleep and they see Saul's spear and they see his water jug. And the man that's with David just simply said to David, uh, God's delivered you, uh, Saul, into your hands today. Just let me take the spear and let me pin him to the ground. And David said, no, 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 no. Do not touch the head of God's anointed. I will not do that. He is above me, but I'm not looking for a way to take him down. David's going to go on to say one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to grow old and die, and then I'll be king, or he's going to go out into battle and be killed, and then I'll be king. I'm not going to do this uh, the way God doesn't want it to be done. David had the opportunity to look at somebody who was above him and say, I'll tear him down. David, after Saul has died and after David's friend Jonathan is no longer on the scene, Saul's son, uh, David's like, I need to restore the kingdom to Saul's family. Is there anybody, any of his relatives? and there's one man left and he's lame and David says, bring him into my uh, house, bring him to the king's table, set him at the king's table. And this man was petrified that the king was going to slay him. And David said, no, 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 no. I'm going to restore to you everything that was your grandfather Saul's. And David looked at the people above him and he looked at the people below him and he's like, I'm no better than either one of them. My eyes are not haughty. And then he says this, he says, my feet uh, do not 
go after things that are too great or too difficult for me. David did great things. He slayed the giant. He he built a kingdom. He, he brought peace to the land. He unified uh, uh, the kingdom in ways that it had never been. He made plans to build the temple. David did great things. It's not saying don't have great dreams and don't go do great things. What it's saying here is you need to have a proper relationship with God. First, a proper relationship with yourself. My heart's not proud. Second, a proper relationship with others. My eyes aren't haughty. Third, a proper relationship with God. My feet don't go after things that are simply God's. And that's again for Samuel 26, what David did. He said, this is God's anointed and I'm not going to kill him. Uh, This is not the will of God. Feet that simply say, God, you're God, you're on the throne and I'm not, and I will trust your will and your way and your plan. This is simply saying the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. That's just this proper understanding. And so David, that's the result. And I don't know about you, but I want a life like that, that views myself and views others and views God in the right way. David simply says in verse one, the result is this, I'm living a life where I no longer try to be God. I let God be God, and I understand who I am in relationship to Him, and I'm on equal footing with everybody else because He's God and none of us are. How does that happen? Well, verse 2 is the process, and I warn you, you're not going to like the process. Uh, David says, this is the kind, that's the result, verse 1, the process is this, surely, I love that word. I need you to understand that in Hebrew, it's it's in the negative. It's as if uh, the writer of Hebrew is saying, uh, hand to God, I take an oath, I swear. We might put it this way. Um, if this isn't true, may lightning strike me dead. If this isn't the truth, they like, this is the truth. He says, surely uh, on, on, on my mother's grave, I have composed and quieted my soul. Like, I've had to do the work. It what didn't happen supernaturally. It didn't happen without effort. There was a lot of work. And that first word says, I've composed. And the word composed means to level, to make smooth. It's the picture in the ancient world of what someone would do if they were building a road. If there were valleys, they had to fill in the valleys to make them level, to make them smooth. If there were mountains, they had to knock them down and to make them level, to make them smooth. If there were crooked ways, they had to straighten them out and make them straight, to make the way level and to make the way smooth. But the other way this word composed is used, it's used of what a farmer does to prepare the soil to receive the seed. That that the soil has to be tilled and worked and softened up and prepared. Uh, uh, Do do you start to see the picture? Uh, He says, I have composed, I've I've prepared my soul to receive what it is that God wants to do. On one occasion, Jesus is going to tell a parable about a sower who goes out to sow seed. And he said, the sower sowed the seed and it fell on four different types of ground. First of all, it fell on some a hard path and it just sat there and the birds came and ate it and took it away before it could do anything. Secondly, it fell on some rocky ground and it, it sprang up quickly, but it had no root. So the sun came out and it withered away and died. Third, it fell on some thorny ground and the thorns surrounded it and choked it out and it didn't produce. And then finally it fell on some fertile ground and some produced 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And I don't know what all those are, but I know one of the things that that the seed produces is a soul that's content, whether it's 30, 60, or 100-fold. Jesus told the disciples because they didn't understand that the truth of this parable, the, the seed is the word of God. And the word of God that just falls on the hard heart, on the hard soul, uh, the hard soil, the enemy comes in and snatches it away and it can't do what it was meant to do. The, the word that falls on the rocky ground, immediately you rejoice in it because it sounds good, but there's no depth, there's no root, and the, the sun comes and the life just comes and it happens and it scorches it and it withers away and it dies. Uh, then the thorny ground 
the thorns come in, the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of this life come and choke out what God's word wants to do. But then the ground is just uh, uh, ready to receive the word. Do you, do you understand that this is what David's saying? Surely I have composed, I've got my soul ready to receive God's word into my life. He's going to say on one occasion, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Your word is what I need. And we just have to prepare our hearts. I always thought about the parable of the storm. Like, that's just not fair. It just, you know, like willy nilly throws the seed. And if it happens to land on the hard ground, well, that's just not fair to that person. Well, it is fair because it's the person's responsibility. The individual farmers, the person that's responsible for that plot of ground to prepare the soil. And David says, I prepared the soil of my soul. I've composed it. I've smoothed it out. I've leveled it. I'm ready. I need to let God's word in. I need to let God's word root. And I need to let God's word grow and produce what only God's word can do. And David said, that's what, that's the process. And then he says, I've learned to compose, surely I've composed and quieted. I love that word. It's just like when, when my soul starts to get noisy, when, when the pressures of life and the pains of life and the guilt of life and all of these things come in and the noise on the outside of life is just all around. I've just learned to say, shh, and it just quiets down. Do you remember the story of Jesus and the boat asleep and the storm comes up and the disciples are afraid and they wake Jesus up and uh, Jesus just says, peace, be still. And he calms all the outward circumstances and he just, just by his peace. And that's what he offers to you and me when he gets ready to go back to heaven. He says, uh, my peace, I live, I leave with you. Uh, uh, it's not peace as the world gives. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take joy. I have overcome the world. He gives us peace. And we can just say to all the noise and all the confusion, shh, you have no place here. And, and I've trained my soul to do just that. But here's what we don't like. The process, we want to get there, right? We want to do the work. But he tells us what the work's like. And he gives us a vivid example. He says this, like a weaned child upon its mother, like a weaned child, so my soul within me. You get the picture, right? Uh, some of you moms have gone through this process with your children and, and weaning them either from breastfeeding or weaning them off the bottle. You know what this is like, dads. We may have been involved in the process of weaning them off the bottle, but moms get it a whole lot more. But but we all know the picture, right, of a, the difference between a child that's been weaned that's laying on its mother's breast and a child that hasn't been weaned that's laying on its mother's breast. The child that hasn't been weaned, if it gets close to the mother's breath, if it just a uh, breast, if it gets close and just has a sniff of its mom, if it's laying on its mom's chest, you know what it does, right? Pacifier out of the mouth. It starts sucking. It starts rooting because it believes that anytime the breast is near, it should be fed, that it's its right. The child that's been weaned knows that that's not correct. The child that's been weaned understands that provision will happen even if the breast is denied. And it's this image of, of how it has to happen. And weaning a child doesn't happen overnight. Do you see the picture? This process results in the difference between an infantile tantrum and childlike trust. The child that's been weaned is like, I don't need the breast milk anymore. There's stuff better than that. Mom started to introduce me to some other stuff, some other stuff that's better. Uh, I might not like the strained peas and the, the ugly looking squash, but oh, those bananas and those strawberries and those fruits and the things that I like, there's some better stuff. It's the process, my friends, and this is what we don't like. It's the process of denying ourselves those things that we think we can't live without. 
It's denying ourselves those things that we think are absolutely essential to our survival. And it's this process of self-denial, and it is painful and it hurts, but the picture of the of the result, the process is my soul's composed, it's, it's quieted. I know those things aren't essential. I can live without them. And so my question for you this morning very simply is this. Have you been weaned? I think there are so many of us that the answer to that question is, I have not been weaned. I think that one of the things that the American church, and I think the church across the world is seeing it, is that God, uh, in this middle of this this disruption that has been COVID-19, not an interruption, but this disruption of COVID-19, is God is showing us there are some things that we haven't been weaned from. And one of the things the American church just hasn't been weaned from is its buildings, because we think that the buildings are essential to the to the Christian life that we want to live, that if we don't have a building, we can't uh, be the kind of Christian. My friend, the building and the facility uh, being at the center, God wants to wean us from that because the, the, the ministry needs to move from uh, facility-centric or f- facility-centered to, to home and neighborhood-centered. It's what Jesus did, John his gospel says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I think God is weaning us off of our church buildings and moving us into our homes and into our neighborhoods to serve our families. That's why we talk about you and the church that's meeting in your house. Have you been weaned? I think some of the other places I see it in American Christianity is is we, we haven't been weaned from the, from the milk. Um, by the way, uh, the author of Hebrews uh, and I, I don't know who it is, but whoever she is, she was brilliant. As she as she writes this, Hebrews chapter 5 says, do, do you not understand that by this time, so many of you should be teachers, but you need to be taught again the elementary things of God. You're only equipped for the milk, not the meat, the solid food of the Word of God. And, and I, I don't mean to be offensive, but in this day and age when that writer would have uh done that, the writer would have simply been saying, uh, you're only, you're, 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 you're still on breast milk. I have friends that are doctors and I've had the joy of doing Bible studies with doctors over the course of my ministry. And I remember uh, the first time I was doing, uh, it's my first pastor back in Pennsylvania, I was meeting with a group of residents at, at the local hospital and uh, they were on their OBGYN uh, rotation. And one of the things they talked about every week was who saw the oldest child that was still breastfeeding. And one of them came in one week and said, I kid you not, there was an eight-year-old breastfeeding in the office last week. And everybody, and I'm probably doing the same reaction you have, you just shudder that that shouldn't happen. But that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Some of you by now should be teachers, but you still need the milk my friends, have you been weaned? One of the ways I see that, I would just ask it about letting the Word of God in, letting it root, letting it grow. I would just ask you, when it comes to your Bible and your Bible study, are you willing to just open your Bible and read it and not look at the cross-references and not look at the study notes and just ask the Holy Spirit of God to first and foremost be your teacher and be your instructor? Most of us answer that, no, we rely too heavily. And those study notes and those cross-references are great, but they ought to come after. They ought to be ways that you compare. Have I really accurately heard what God had to say? I see so many of us in this day and age, we we listen to to our commentaries, we listen to our podcast, and we listen to all the preachers, and I know there are 
way better preachers than I am out there. And you can listen to all the preachers you want, but until you open the word of God and let God's spirit be your main teacher, you haven't been weaned and getting into the, to the word of God. I just wonder if some of you and some of us just haven't been weaned. I told you you weren't going to like the process, but that's what like a weaned child upon its mother. Those things that we think were absolutely essential aren't. And we can live without them. But what we can't live without, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to understand and grow. Let God's word in, let it root and and let it grow. It's just this powerful, powerful picture of the process. And I wonder, is there some area in your life, something that you consider absolutely essential that God said, that's not essential. You, you see the picture right again. It's the picture of a of an infantile tantrum compared to childlike trust. God, I'm not going to throw a tantrum and make you give you what I want, instant gratification. I'm willing to wait, which leads us to the reason. And that's verse three, hope, O Israel, in the Lord now and forever. Most of your translations that you're reading from, if you have your Bibles open, it doesn't come in that word or order. It usually says, O Israel, hope. But in the Hebrew, word order is important. And the first word of the sentence is hope, hope, hope. It can also be translated wait. What, what does it mean to wait? To wait is that is that patient expectation and perseverance. I, I expect God to do something, but I'm but I'm patient and I'm and I'm waiting for God to act. Our hope. If I were to ask you what's what's the opposite of fact, most of you would probably say fiction. But according to the scriptures, the the the, the, the hope is the is the opposite of fact. And that, and some of you are like, well, well, we, we hope in God. Does that mean God's not fact? No, no, no. I need you to understand something. When the scripture says hope in the Lord, uh, there's this old saying that says uh, every Jewish person is 3,000 years old. And it's the understanding that that even though I didn't see what took place at Sinai, even though I didn't see what took place at the Red Sea, even though I didn't see God show up in Moses in the burning bush, that is my history, that is my story, and that is fact. I believe it to be true. Even though I wasn't present when Nehemiah came and rebuilt the walls, I was there. That is my story. That is the truth. That is fact. That's 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 what we base our hope on. We base our hope on the fact. That's why the writers of the New Testament, John, again, one of the ones that would have saying this with Jesus as he goes to the temple for Pentecost or Passover or Tabernacles. He's going to ride in First John. He said, that which we have heard with our own ears and seen with our own eyes and touched with our own hands concerning Jesus, that's what we proclaim to you. Again, it's why the, the, the author of Hebrews is going to say, so since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we take as fact what God did. We believe it to be fact. And our hope isn't just wishful thinking. Our hope is built on what he did. And our hope understands what he will do, is confident of what he will do. Read Hebrews 11.1 1, at some point. Uh, uh, Peter, again, one of the Jesus' disciples, is going to write on another occasion. He's like, set your hope on the grace to be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. First Peter chapter 1, set your hope. There's only one thing that hasn't happened yet, my friends. That's Jesus Christ returning, bringing with him all of the grace that you and I need because we need a lot of forgiveness. And so just as we receive Jesus by faith, we believe and hope that he will come. It's just hope that we the wait. Here's how we've been describing it. I haven't used these this exact sentence, but friends, hope is living right in the middle of he did and he will. 
I know that he did. It's fact what Jesus did. And I know and I hope, um, it's not wishful thinking, but he will come again. Peter's going to write, uh, the day of the Lord will come. Be certain that he's coming back. It's going to come like a thief. You're not going to know when he's going to come back. And therefore, we ought to be the certain kind of people who live with hope, patiently enduring whatever we go through. Look at Job 13 sometime, Job chapter 13. I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but Job chapter 13, Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Same word used as here in Psalm 131.3. Like, if I have to wait until I die to be proven right, which isn't that what's really going to happen? If we have to wait until we die, that's what's going to happen. Friends, I I need you to grab a hold of this psalm. You've seen the result. You've seen the process, and you've seen the reason because we are people who live with hope because he did and he will. So what's that mean for us today? Two things, to look, two ways to look at this. First of all, I encourage you to look at it. Just go through this psalm. I'm not going to do it for you, but go through the psalm and put these uh, words in the mouth of Jesus as he ascends to Jerusalem for the last time as he goes to Passover, and in just a few days he'll be killed. And he'll say, Lord... My heart is not proud. And even though I get on the back of the donkey and they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. My heart is not proud. He's going to have, not, he will not have haughty eyes. He will allow God to remain in his seat and not try to tear him down. He will not try to tear down those religious leaders and those political figures who are above him and he will remain silent like a sheep before shearers is silent. He, he's, he's not going to look down on his disciples when they don't get up from the table and wash his feet. He'll get up from the table and he'll serve them and he'll wash their feet. I wonder if these words that he's saying as he came into Jerusalem, that last Passover were on his mind of the things that were going to, to have to take place. Think about verse 2. Lord, I have composed and quieted my soul for what he was about ready to face, and he can go through what he goes through. Put those in the in the words of in the mouth of Jesus and just think about it that way. But what does it mean for me and you? Verse one, do you have a right relationship? Do you see yourself in the right perspective, others in the right perspective, and God? There's a story about a group of kids uh, who wanted to build a clubhouse in their neighborhood, and they built this clubhouse. Every clubhouse has to have rules, right? And the kids came up with three rules, and the rules were very simply these. Nobody act big. Nobody act small. Everybody act medium. That's verse one. Hey, I am no better. I am no worse than anybody else. I'm a sinner in desperate need of God's grace. I have this proper view I want God's will, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Friends, what's the alternative? The alternative, and in just a few minutes, I'm going to end by quoting the psalm with you one more time. I'm going to ask you, the words will be on the screen, ask you to quote it with me. But the alternative to quoting this psalm is to quote the anti-psalm. And instead of saying, Lord, you'd say, self. My heart is proud. I'm obsessed with myself, and I want what's best for me, and that's all I'm going to be concerned about. I do have oddy eyes. Those people that are above me, I'm going to tear down. Those people that are below me, I'm going to keep down. I do go after things that are too great and too difficult. I want, uh, God, I want your seat. I'm not going to wait for your time and your will and your way. My heart, my, 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 surely, uh, my soul is loud and noisy. I'm like an infantile child throwing a tantrum, like an infantile child throwing a tantrum, wanting instant gratification. That's who I am. And I will not hope in God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm going to hope in things that are changing fashion and changing fads. I will hope in the next political election. I will hope in the next uh, stimulus check. I will hope in getting back into a church building. I, no, no, all those things fade away. That's the only alternative. Or will you 
do what King David did as he wrote Psalm 131. Would you quote it with me? Psalm 131, a song for pilgrims ascending to heaven, a song of David. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. My feet do not walk after things that are too great or too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child upon its mother, like a weaned a weaned child, my soul within me. Hope, O Israel, in the Lord, now and forever. Father God, may we simply have this kind of result in our life as we go through the weaning process, not wanting instant gratification, but willing to wait and hope that your will, your way, and your timing is best. And even though you slay us, if we have to wait until death, if we have to wait until eternity, we know that our hope will be made sure as Jesus returns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, bless my friends, your children, and their homes as they wrestle with the words, these 33 words, this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.